Welcome to Why Knowledge Matters. In this episode, Professor Dr. Douglas Farrell joins me to discuss theology and its relevancy in secular society. Welcome, Professor. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for inviting me, Yannick. Let's just dive into it. What is theology? Well, theology is, uh, as a word, not very complicated. It, it comes from two Greek terms, theos, meaning God, and logos, which refers, of course, to reason. And we might say that theology is simply rational discourse about God. Uh, it, it seems to uh, it seems to be Plato who who first introduced this term into Western tradition. Uh, he was looking for uh, forms of discourse about God that were more scientific and less fanciful, such as you found in in the in the epic poets, and um, and so. From that point onward, um, well, really, even the pre-Socratic philosophers were looking for a more rational, disciplined kind of discourse about God, partly because, like Augustine many centuries later, they were concerned that undisciplined talk about God actually fed into vicious habits and... and, and um, Un unhelpful ways of life. Uh, if we think rightly about the creator and the source of all, we are more likely to, um, to think properly and rightly about ourselves and the way we live uh, together uh, and also in our own individual lives. So, so um, it's been developing as a discipline in philosophy um, since the days of Plato and Aristotle, in, in Christian theology, of course, it became very important from the very earliest days of Christianity. So, uh, you know, by the middle of the first century of the um, era after Jesus, uh, theology was already beginning to take shape. And by uh, the end of the second century, it was becoming a quite um, almost formal discipline in a, in a rudimentary fashion. Does theology matter in a secular society and also in, let's say, universities, academia? Well, of course, um, let's, let's, um, well, let's, let's approach that the other way around and start with the universities. The universities themselves grew out of, in the Middle Ages, uh, grew out of the uh, bodies or um, of scholars uh, who were working with bishops in the cathedrals or working with abbots in the monasteries and um, who were trying to organize education for the for the people in of those towns that they were uh, in or nearby, and 
eventually uh, determined to to have um, a, a more expansive, uh, what we would call tertiary education, where where students could come from other places and take advantage of the scholarship that was going on in these uh, chapter houses, as they were called, or in the monasteries. And um, so that's, you know, that's how the, the universities actually emerged in, in the 12th century. Um, and, and so theology was central to them. Uh, basically, there was an undergraduate education in the arts and also in, in you know, logic and, and arithmetic and, and music. Um, astronomy, so arts and sciences. And then if you went on to do what we would call graduate work, you, you were working either in medicine where your, your focus is on advanced study of how to help the body, um, or it's in law where you're trying to help the body politic, so to say, the, the society as a whole. Um, or it is in theology. Uh, those three, medicine, law, and theology, uh, were at the heart of the graduate schools. In theology, you are seeking to explore the entire uh, worldview of your civilization and, and, to, and to think out um, the implications of the, of the scriptures and the teachings of the church. And these these uh, these touch on many areas of life. So so um, so theology was central both in the emergence of the university as such, um, and also in the in, in in being in a sense its highest faculty or or, or unit of uh, and program of study. Um, now. When after the Reformation and into the Enlightenment period, um, the a movement began to, to um, as it were, um, minimize or marginalize the theology faculties, which were still the largest in the universities in Europe. And, um, and give more emphasis to philosophy, uh, which had always been a central part, but, um, but in, a, in a way that was somewhat subordinate to theology. Uh, now the emphasis began to be on liberating philosophy from theology and liberating the, um, the physical sciences from both philosophy and theology. And so the, what we consider the modern university uh, evolved in a fashion that tended towards uh, uh, a marginalization of theology. And that generally remains the case, in, especially in North America. It's not always the case in some parts of Europe and, and elsewhere in the world. But it, it's, it, and, and there are some North American universities where theology is still considered um, uh, an important part of what, you know, of, of, the, of the whole work of the university. But on the whole, 
it it has been uh, it has been marginalized and uh, over the last few centuries. And so, say at my university, you know, there are only a few of us who actually work in theology, uh, and you know, we can turn then to your question about society at large. But maybe that helps your audience a little bit to with the history of this. Yeah, let's discuss this a little bit more in depth. What would you attribute to these changes, especially when it comes to academia as it is of today? Well, the role of, of the theologian was, uh, and, and, and to, um, we should say also of the philosopher, and to study theology at the advanced level, you had to study philosophy first. Um, but the role of both is, is, and especially of the theologian, is to help, um, uh, not only to help the, the, the church to think about God in a reasoned fashion, but to help the rest of the academy to see how the different disciplines cohere. In other words, um, to, to give a, um, a unity to the studies that take place in the university as a whole. Now, these days that's very, very difficult because there's a lot of talk about interdisciplinarity in the universities. But, but there's not a lot of serious work done about the coherence of the Western worldview. In fact, the Western worldview is often in many universities today uh, disliked and, and, uh, and a lot is done to effectively dissolve it if possible. So the, the kind of unity that the medieval universities sought is not actually sought. In, in the modern university at this point, by modern, I, I, I now should say sort of post-postmodern, but at this point in our, in our uh, society, uh, if there's anything that pulls a university together, it's probably something um, ideological by way of an attack on some feature of so-called Western civilization. Um, rather than an attempt to see the big picture and to, and to integrate different uh, spheres of knowledge and different uh, pursuits of knowledge. So it's a tough uphill battle for, uh, for a theologian uh, to ex explain to colleagues why this former pursuit still needs to be done uh, it's not quite so difficult to explain the damage that is being done by giving up on coherence. Uh, we see lots of illustrations of that in these days in the hard sciences as well as in the, the humanities. Um, but it's tough. It's tough to explain that. And, and to your question about the larger concerns of secular society as a whole, well, again, there's not much that holds it together uh, except 
perhaps uh, whatever the prevailing um, flavor of the day is in, in terms of, of some special cause or other. And of course, people want the economy to work well. Um, but, but as a secular society, what we, what we often mean when we say that is we're, we don't go there. We, we don't do the big picture. We don't talk about God. Um, and not only with the theologians, we don't talk about God, but we don't talk about God with the philosophers either. Uh, anything that implies something greater than ourselves, we don't, we don't do. We, we don't talk about that. Um, and unless it's a, a war or you know something that you know that is supposed to pull us together to uh, you know to fight an enemy is the enemy racism is the enemy uh, a coronavirus is the enemy the nation next door well we'll try to pull together to do those things but beyond that we don't think big and we don't try to connect the dots that seems to me quite problematic about our secular society, but you would expect a theologian to think that was a problem. This is really interesting, especially also how you mentioned coherence and to make sense of what we are doing. And if we don't have somehow a backbone where we all can to some extent agree of what we are doing or have to somehow an orientation, then it becomes very difficult. And I think we see more and more uh, how fragmented societies is. And I think partly it's certainly attributable to, to some extent that we lose this sense of having an orientation, having a backbone as it was in uh, previous societies. So this is a big um, a question, obviously, and we are not able to obviously address all these questions. So if it matters, does it matter in a special way to Christians when it comes to theology and a secular society? Yes. Well, um, you know, Jesus talked about his followers as being uh, or, or, or supposed to be uh, like salt <laughs> and, and, it, you know, salt preserves. It also, um, uh, strengthens the, the taste of something. Um, of course you put too much on it. It has the opposite effect, but Jesus concern was that, that his followers might have too little effect that they might be effectively useless and, and as he said, good for nothing, but to be thrown out and trampled on. Um, uh, if, if that's not the fate that his followers, that Christians uh, wish to, um, to have, then, then they need to think uh, and pray uh, hard about what they actually embody of the teachings of Jesus uh, in their society and in the way they um, relate to that society, which means um, a lot of things, but among them is that they're going to have to think 
rationally about God. <laughs> they're, they're going to have to have a disciplined discourse, not only about God, but about Jesus, about the church, about uh, human life and what makes for human flourishing so that they can communicate to their neighbors um, what is actually important for their neighbors to learn about real human flourishing, which, which um, is, is something that many people these days are very uncertain about. Uh, I think one reason that, they've, that people today have become so um, fixated on safety, whether it's safety in, in terms of their um, thoughts and their lifestyle, or safety in terms of medicine and viruses and so forth, is that you know they've they've given up on on seeing things whole. They've given up on any sort of more profound notion of flourishing, and they're just trying to protect uh, what little they've got left. Um, so, you know, if Christians want to want to confront that sort of shallowness and the cowardice, frankly, that goes with it. You know, we, we, we you know, we've become a, a society that is, is, everything has to be safe, safe, safe. Uh, you know, there, there, that, that's, uh, there's something, there's something gone wrong there. And if, if Christians want to make a difference in a world like that, they're going to have to learn how to articulate and live um, something uh, more authentically Christian based on a deeper and firmer grasp of who God is and who is this uh, Jesus whom they call the Christ, um, the Messiah, you know, who is he? What is, what is he about? And, and, and what difference does it make to, to uh, believe in him and to, and to become a disciple? Those, those sorts of things need a lot of attention. It doesn't have to be under the rubric of theology, but it will always involve theology if it's serious. Your favorite theologians? Well, a number of people uh, come to mind, and, and I, I try to teach uh, at my university, uh, get people reading these, these people. I'll mention a few of those. Obviously, there are a great many and they're uh, um, all of interest in different ways. But the ones that have shaped my own thinking the most um, are the following. Uh, let's, let's begin again with the, the one who, who really set theology as a discipline in motion, and that's uh, Saint Irenaeus of Lyon, who, who lived at the end of the second century and one of whose great challenges was to defend the goodness of the body um, against uh, uh, currents of thought that tended to, um, to treat the body with disdain. Uh, so one of his tasks was to work with the first article of the Christian creed, you know, the belief in God, creator of all things visible and invisible, so of the body as well as of the soul and to help people think out the implications of that. There were a lot of other things that he had to do, but uh, that, that was one of them. Um, later on, of course, the, one of the most famous names in, in 
in theology in the Western hemisphere, at least, well, not the Western hemisphere, but in the Latin speaking realm uh, was Augustine. And so we, we try to read quite a bit of Augustine and, and he is so rich in his engagement, uh, his theological engagement with his own Roman culture um, and with, uh, with various uh, controversies, of course, that had arisen by his day at the, um, at, at the end of the fourth century. Uh, so Irenaeus, Augustine, uh, one of my favorites after that is Anselm of Canterbury. Uh, you know, now, now we're talking, you know, the end of the, of the 10th century, but, um, but Anselm, um, uh, well, sorry, I should say, uh, 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 we're talking about the period just, just up to 1100. Um, Anselm uh, was a very powerful philosophical thinker and a very deep theologian. And, um, and so uh, I read him with my students quite a lot because he, he really um, uh, has a very acute analytical mind and he's read in the philosophy department too, but they tend to confine themselves over there to, you know, to just uh, small bits of Anselm. We, we try to look at the, the big picture with Anselm. And uh, in, in the modern uh, times, uh, you know, Karl Barth was very influenced, influential on me, the Protestant theologian, although I'm critical of him in various respects. Um, uh, but, um, uh, these are, these are some of the people who have most influenced my own thinking. What have you been working lately on and what are your future projects? So, um, my most recent book is a theological commentary on the the first uh, Christian literature, um, the letters that Paul wrote to the church in Thessaloniki, um, and it's it's a it's a theological commentary. That is, it it both tries to treat the text in detail and also think out the ideas, engaging not only with Paul but with subsequent theologians, such as I mentioned. Um, and I'm still. Um, even this this summer, working on some addenda, you could say, to that task. Um, I've also been working a lot uh, around the the subject of the um, of the health and uh, political crisis that we've been experiencing globally. And uh, I would like next, if if things are peaceful enough, to do that to to um, to write my uh, book on theological ethics, which I've been preparing for for some time, uh, uh, bringing theology and and uh, and these questions about human flourishing together, uh, and turning my lectures on that into a into a book. Yeah, Douglas Farrell. It has been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. You're, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure to have talked to you. I'm always keen on, uh, on encouraging people to think theologically. Thank you so much. Douglas Breeze Farrell.